are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2018. Today's episode is titled, The Singular Gospel and Work. Managers must be clear that spiritual reality drives physical reality. Long-term success is rooted in sound spiritual reality operative in the individual stakeholders of the organization. This is a non-negotiable truth. One of the primary roles of managers is to walk circumspectly in this truth. They must diligently work with each stakeholder to help them grow and mature in Christ, doing the will of God in the ways of God, in the timing of God. They must also help stakeholders find their specific callings, develop their skills to fulfill their callings, and set a context for them to succeed. This is sound management thinking, an action that will produce a consistently excellent, effective, and efficient value proposition for the organization. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Singular Gospel and Work. Well, good morning. I want to share with you out of Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. The book of Galatians is a powerful book revealing the truth of the gospel and the the purity of the gospel and the singularity of the gospel. So I've titled the message this morning, A Singular Gospel. The epistle of Galatians was written early in the history of Christianity, and appropriately, it addresses one of the first questions of the church. Does one have to obey the Jewish law to be a Christian? The issue was settled by the first church council, which met in Jerusalem in about 50 A.D., On this question, the church council concluded that you did not have to become a Jew, that that would be an undue burden on people, that all all people, regardless whether you are a Jew or Gentile, you are saved in the same way. That is, you're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is indeed good news. This is the gospel of Christianity. It's the key to how to be delivered from the penalty of sin and death that all mankind is under. The evidence that a person has received the grace, this grace from Christ, is faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. So faith is a gift, just like the regenerating work of the Spirit to bring you alive in Christ is a gift. So regeneration is the predicate to faith, and faith then is the evidence of regeneration. Therefore, salvation is not earned by human works. Salvation is the free gift from the sovereign God of the universe. There is, therefore, a singular gospel. There is no other gospel. The Old Testament did not contain a gospel. Only the New Testament contains a gospel. There's never been and never will be any other gospel because there's only one solution to the problem of human sin and death, namely the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now this begs a question. What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Paul addressed this point specifically starting in Galatians chapter 3. He made it clear that the purpose of the law was to reveal mankind's impotency That is his lack of ability in doing enough good works to make oneself acceptable with God. This means that mankind, in and of himself, cannot affect salvation from the penalty of sin and death. Sin is systemic in the human race because of the fall of Adam and Eve, and mankind is therefore impotent to change this condition. The experiment of the law simply revealed this reality and was never able to be a gospel. 
Furthermore, not only did Paul make this point in this epistle of Galatians, but the Old Testament also confirmed this reality. Note the words of the Old Testament prophet Haggai. He said, the righteous shall live by faith. So even in the Old Testament, we have testimony to the reality that the only true gospel, the only true deliverance from the penalty of sin and death has to come through faith. And faith comes now from the hearts of those who've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit based on the work of Christ on the cross. This means that even during the Old Testament period, salvation from the penalty of sin and death was by faith. And the Apostle Paul confirmed this understanding in Romans 3 and 4. Now let's turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and I'll read the text to you, and then we'll talk about it a bit. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is a very powerful text. Paul begins this section of the epistle to the community of believers in Galatia with an expression of astonishment. To turn from the gospel of the grace of Christ is an abandonment of Christ, the very heart of the gospel. The word used here, deserting, in the English language, is the present participle. It implies a continuous, expanding, ongoing process among the Galatian believers. There was a progressive falling away from Christ. Perhaps this is similar to an infectious disease, a deadly infectious disease that is spreading through the Christian communities. Now, given the grave seriousness of the situation, Paul was astonished. He's shocked. He cannot believe it. How is this happening? Or in other words, he marveled, marveled in a very negative sense, not in the sense of being positive. Now, sometimes we marvel in a very positive sense. Okay, one time Jesus marveled in a positive sense, and another time he marveled in a negative sense. He marveled, for example, when he encountered a Roman centurion, a pagan man who understood authority and equated it, and Jesus equated his understanding and expression of faith in that authority to great faith. So when Jesus sees the, you know, the understanding of authority in the centurion, he says this, He said, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He's saying this centurion has got greater faith than the Israelites do because he understood authority. So, So he marveled. Jesus marveled in a very positive sense because of that. On another occasion, Jesus marveled in a negative sense. This was a time when he was doing his traveling itinerant work. And uh, he is uh, traveling around his own hometown, his own uh, around is the people that he grew up with, people that knew him from an early age. And he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief as he went around the villages in the circuit teaching, and they didn't get it. This is, Ma- this is Mark 6, 6, if you want to look that up. 
This text referred to those who lived around Jesus as he grew up. They enjoyed the best opportunity to recognize him as at least a child prodigy. For example, at age 12, Jesus amazed the theologians of his day with an understanding of Scripture. Then the citizens of Nazareth watched Jesus transition from being an apprentice carpenter under the tutelage of his father to being the carpenter and finally a well-known itinerant teacher. Yet these people were not able to see or comprehend with metaphysical awareness the call of God on his life. The blindness marveled Jesus. So this is a negative sense of being marveled. Well, like Jesus, Paul is marveled. But he's not marveled because he's impressed. He's marveled because he's shocked. He's shocked in a very negative sense about the rapid abandonment of Christ as the core of the gospel of grace. This should not be. This cannot be. This is not true. The gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone is the only true gospel. The gospel is singular, meaning there is no other gospel. To abandon the gospel is tantamount to abandoning Christ. The Galatians were surely knowledgeable of the Old Testament teaching regarding the failure of Israel to obey God's righteous standard. How could they now abandon the gift of the new covenant, knowing that the old covenant never worked? That was truly amazing, shocking, stunning, alarming. The problem was that the Galatians abandoned the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone and embraced a different kind or class of gospel. To emphasize this point, Paul used the word eteros. Now, eteros means another of a different form, nature, class, or kind. For example, the English word heterosexual means a different class of sexuality. To describe the gospel that the Galatians embraced, the Galatians were progressively abandoning the gospel of the grace of Christ and embracing a totally different gospel. It was a gospel of works based on the presumption of human potency, not grace based on divine potency. The Old Testament illustrated that humans were impotent to solve the problem of sin and death. A gospel based on human potency is therefore no gospel at all. There is only one gospel that is efficacious to solve the problem of sin and death, and that is the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. This gospel is unique. It is not only one in its class, there is no other like it. It is a singular gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who will trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There are some who have, whose agenda is to oppose Christ and seek to disrupt his disciples. This is the objective of those who embrace a different gospel, a false gospel. Paul exposed the motives of those who imposed the singular gospel. The singular gospel was and is the true gospel and was and there was and is no other. Therefore, a mark of one opposed to Christ was and is a gospel based on the presumption of human potency. This is a false gospel. This is a gospel based on works. In a pluralistic culture such as today, where all worldviews are acceptable, the idea of a singular gospel is hard to embrace because pluralism pleases mankind and opposes the singularity of Christ and the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of his gospel. Pluralism is politically correct. Pluralism is the norm, but pluralism only leads to a false gospel. There is one true gospel, a singular gospel, 
the gospel of grace in Christ. Verses 8 and 9 are rather shocking because they basically say the same thing. But if, if even we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now these words seem harsh and intolerant. But to the trained Jewish ear of the first century, the curse that Paul pronounced on those who abandoned Christ, who are in the process of abandoning Christ and the gospel of the grace of Christ, this curse would have been very familiar. They would have reflected back on Deuteronomy 28, which recorded the predicate for blessings and cursings for the people of God. The predicate for the former was obedience. You want to be blessed, you obey. The predicate for the latter was disobedience. You know, you disobey, you will be judged, you will be cursed. The Israelites, God's chosen people, his Old Testament ecclesia, disobeyed the law of God. Therefore, they were cursed by being made vassals under the rule of despotic foreign kings. By using the imagery of being cursed, the apostle clearly signaled the gravity and danger of not understanding the singular gospel and not clearly holding on to this as the singular gospel. Verse 9 is a repeat. You know, as with the prior verse, the phrase, let him be accursed, is an imperative. In both verses, this let him be accursed is an imperative in the Greek language. You might consider this an imprecatory prayer. We don't generally pray imprecatory prayers today because those are not considered to be nice, and we generally tend to pray, not pray nice prayers. But Paul is very firm very direct, very in-your-face, very not politically correct. But that is where Paul's conviction is. This conviction is in the truth of the gospel. Paul asked the Father to execute judgment on the proclamation of any gospel that was inconsistent with the singular gospel of Christ. We today probably would never do what Paul did. We would never be that bold, that direct, that that harsh with anyone. We are we're much more kind. Some, some people have said we're nicer than Jesus and we're nicer than Paul. That's probably true. We tend to be that way. The message of the Old Testament was in part that mankind, in and of himself, can never measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. To illustrate this reality, consider four major tests of human potency recorded in the Old Testament. In each case, these experiments revealed human impotency regarding man's efforts to satisfy, satisfy God's standard of righteousness. So here are the experiments. Number one, man was given an experiment, obey one law. That was Adam and Eve's experiments. Mankind in a perfect world could not even obey one law. And by the way, if you think that would not be true of you, then you were deceived. Because what was in Adam and Eve is in us. We would have done the same thing. The next experiment, do as you wish. You see, between the fall of man and the flood, there was no written revelation. There was only oral tradition and general revelation. And so between this time frame, what happens is mankind just progressively declines and decays into, into more and more expressed depravity. The depravity was there, and it just became more and more evident and obvious over time. So again, judgment came. The next experiment was believe it or promise. Abraham was given a promise by God, but could not trust God and took matters in his own hands, and we produced an Ishmael. We can't even trust God when God gives us a very clear promise of blessing. 
And finally, the fourth experiment was a system of laws. The children of Israel were given a system of laws, a code of conduct, and basically said, if you will just obey my laws, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's all you have to do. And they said in Exodus 19, they said, we'll do this. We'll do this. But in the end, Israel rejected God and embraced idolatry. Israel rejected divine revelation and chose the way of the world. We do that today. That's the same thing we do. That's what we're doing worldwide in the culture today. We want to live like pagans. That's exactly how Israel chose to live, as pagans and not as servants of God. You see, this message is abundantly clear. Mankind, based on his or her own potency, can never be righteous enough to be acceptable with God. It doesn't matter what the experiment is, we will fail. And, of course, all of that is designed to bring us to the need of a Savior. The Old Testament, the great message of the Old Testament, it's to set up the need for Christ. We need a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. We need to some, someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that leads us to Christ. It leads us to his substitutionary atonement. It leads us to the singular gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. In the early days of the church, the inclination was to be syncretistic and to syncretize human potency and divine potency by combining the Old Testament law with a singular gospel. That's what they tried to do at the first church conference. But Paul unequivocally opposed this view, just like the church conference, first church conference did. They concluded that that view was wrong and they were strong and Paul was even stronger and saying not only is that view of trying to combine works and, and grace some way where our human potency is buying and meriting favor with God, not only is that wrong, anyone who believes that or is trying to teach that in any way is to be cursed. It doesn't matter if an angel is doing it. They are to be cursed. The singular gospel must be stand pure, uncompromised, and unadulterated. And finally, verse 10, Paul addresses the point of the accusation that he might be trying to please man. And surely that was an accusation that some of his opponents were making against him. So it reads, For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, I'm not trying to please man. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And Paul, if he would, Paul was anything, he was a servant of Christ. Perhaps there was no time in Paul's life that he sought to please man rather than God. Excuse me, perhaps there was a time in Paul's life that he sought to please man rather than God, but no longer. If anyone questioned Paul's motive for declaring the singular gospel, he wanted to disabuse them of that. The singular gospel did not and does not appeal to mankind and therefore does not please mankind. Given the default state of mankind to make fig leaves, which is what we see in the garden after Adam and Eve sin, mankind's proclivity by nature was and still is to seek to produce his or her own righteousness and thereby attempting to make himself or herself acceptable with God. For Paul to articulate a gospel that is contrary to man's default state did not and does not please mankind. You see, the gospel of Christ will always be rejected by man. The only people that will receive the gospel of Christ 
will be those who the Holy Spirit is touching. That's the mark. We're looking for receptivity and openness to the truth. That's the mark of the Spirit at work in people's hearts. Consequently, Paul's preaching of the senior gospel of the grace of Christ was not an effort to please mankind. There is nothing about the singular gospel that gratifies the base nature of fallen human beings. Well, there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of these theological ideas, um, in terms of the singular gospel, for example, uh, in terms of the five solas, in terms of independence. So I have three areas here. I don't know that I've got time to go through all three so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick uh, one here to talk about. I'm gonna talk about the solas. Uh, this is the time of the Reformation, the anniversary of the Reformation. So there's been a lot of conversation about the five solas. So I thought I would just mention these to you real quickly. At the heart of what Dennis Peacock calls the war between two seeds is a reference to the protevangelum of Genesis 3:15. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. The good news of God's plan of salvation for fallen mankind from the self-imposed curse of sin and death. The good news was the singular gospel of the grace of Christ through his vicarious atoning work. During the first 500 years of church history, the Christian community came to clarity regarding the gospel. There were numerous attacks on the nature of Christ, the nature of God, and the nature of man, the nature of the Holy Spirit and how, the, how Christ and God and the Holy Spirit related to each other. All of these things were under scrutiny during this time frame. In every case, the Christian church held to the Pauline view. Then over the next thousand years, the rise in power of the Roman Catholic Church slowly led to a distortion of the gospel. When the Reformation occurred in the 16th century, there was a return to the true Pauline gospel. In time, the framers of the Reformed theology synthesized the essence of the Pauline gospel, gospel around five solas. Sola means alone. And I'm just going to give you the English translation of these solas. The first one is scripture alone, which meant that scripture was the primary source of authority regarding faith and practice. The next was grace alone, which meant the salvation from the penalty of sin and death to eternal life was a free gift of God. Nothing that we do merits favor with God. It is a free gift. The third sola is faith alone, which meant that the person who received the free gift of God displayed faith in Christ. The fourth sola is Christ alone, which meant that the basis of the free gift of God was the righteous work of Christ alone. Nothing we do at all merits righteousness with God. Only the righteous work of Christ can do it. And finally, the fifth sola is glory to God alone, which meant that the purpose of God in giving the free gift of salvation to mankind was to bring glory to himself. We tend to think of it very selfishly as escape from eternal judgment. Well, it is escape from eternal judgment, but it's much more than that. It's something that God wanted to do and chose to do, and freely did of his own volition, we did nothing to merit. Though the articulation of the solas did not occur until centuries after the Apostle Paul lived, the solas capture the heart of the Pauline Gospel. As one reads Galatians today, the clear, compelling, cogent sound of the five solas can be heard resounding with potency through the inspired words of the redoubtable first century Apostle. Specifically, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, sola gratia, which is by grace alone, and 
by Christ alone, solus Christus, are stressed with great conviction and singularity. So persuaded was Paul of this singularity that he pronounced an unambiguous curse, commanded an unambiguous, unambiguous curse on any human being or angel who opposed, modified, altered, tried to synthesize, truncate the singular gospel in any way. These bold words are direct and unmistakable. The apostles' message is undeniable. There is a singular gospel. There is no other gospel, period. Paul is very clear. There is no wavering in him at all. He is to the point, he is precise, and he is not taking prisoners. So let's talk about some application. How do we apply this, this thinking and this truth as we think about you know, walking with God in our various vocational callings? When one understands that axiomatically spiritual reality drives physical reality, then one understands that the physical realm is the tangible manifestation of underlying spiritual reality. If you know Christ, it's because there's been a, a regeneration in your heart performed by the Holy Spirit. That is spiritual reality in you that is now manifesting in you an external reality of you making a profession of faith in Christ and now you trying to walk according to a biblical worldview. That's how reality works. Now, spiritual reality drives every bit of physical reality. A corollary of this truth is that unsound spiritual reality produces poor results such as poverty, suffering, failure, and death. And sound spiritual reality is the predicate for sound physical results such as prosperity, health, success, and life. The singular gospel is an example of sound spiritual reality that will produce then sound results. Those who embrace the gospel lay a foundation for a productive life, including a productive work life. Wise managers, for example, recognize the value of hiring people who embrace the singular gospel. This does not mean that they hire people who profess to be Christians or people who attend church. Wise managers look deeper. They look for C4 people. They look particularly for people with godly character. To see godly character, managers, managers must examine the fruit of people's lives, seeking to discern who truly embraces the singular gospel. Those who have truly received the gospel of grace in Christ will manifest this reality in how they live. As James stated in his epistle, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. James 2.26 The faith that one truly possesses is evidenced by one's actions. Congruence between faith and works is the only way to live authentically. Any disconnect between faith and works is hypocrisy. The evidence of one's faith revealed through one's works can be seen in every area of life, personally, in the family, in the church, at work, and in the community. It is holistic. Those who possess faith in the singular gospel seek to be aligned with the will and ways of God. That is, they display godly character. When people with godly character are properly placed in an organization, that is, they have C4 for their work assignment in that organization, they will be fruitful. Therefore, as a maximum, as a management maxim, genuine faith in the singular gospel holistically applied in life should be the number one criterion for hiring. But this is a very high standard, and given the state of the body of Christ today, it is difficult for managers to be true to this standard. 
Is there, is there an accommodation for those who don't meet the standard but may be in the process of growing into the standard? Well, my, my thesis is yes, there is an accommodation. As with all maxims, there are exceptions. Many managers dis discover that few professing Christians display the fruit consistent with the singular gospel. They may claim to believe in Christ, but their actions are inconsistent. Therefore, there is at least some doubt regarding the veracity of their spiritual condition. In the instances when the spiritual state of the person is in doubt, managers must exercise discernment about the truth. If these people display the traits of humility, submission, and teachability, then they can be discipled. And when managers see these traits in a person and feel led by the Holy Spirit to disciple these people, managers have reason to believe that they could be called to disciple the person in the context of the workplace. In this situation, managers may be led of the Lord to hire such people. However, in such cases, managers must guard against presumption and recognize that they are leaning on common grace to empower these people enough so that their contribution to the organization will be positive as the managers disciple them. Therefore, though it is possible that the Lord may lead a manager to hire a non-C4 person, managers must be spiritually sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Hiring is a deeply spiritual exercise and requires much spiritual wisdom and discernment. And may the Lord give us grace to learn to be good managers, to hire well, and to hire based on biblical standards. In Jesus' name, amen.